0: Blog Talk Radio. Uh-huh.
1: Good evening and welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where GMB Racing's Tom Steta got his first graded stakes win in the Fayette Stakes at Keeneland, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where five Oaklawn Stakes winners will compete in the Breeders' Cup at Santa Anita. Thank you for joining us for episode 36, the Breeders' Cup Championship Special. As some of you know, I've loved horses and ponies all my life, and I've been a fan of horse racing since Secretariat won the Triple Crown in 1973. I've experienced the joy of seeing five Triple Crown winners in my lifetime and the heartbreak when young horses like Ruffian, 8 Bells, and Barbaro couldn't be saved after an injury. Our lives have highs and lows, but we keep moving forward, and horse racing is no different. Those connected to the industry do what they do because they love the horses and they love the sport. Tonight, we're joined by turf writer and bloodstock editor of the Pollock Report, Joe Nevels, from Georgetown, Kentucky, home of Jitterbug, columnist and human trainer, and racing legend Silver Charm and War Emblem, who greet fans at Old Friends Farm. Joe's love for horses and horse racing started with his parents, Belgian draft horses, and his grandfather, who bred and raced thoroughbreds on tracks in Michigan. His career as a turf rider began while he was still in college with articles for Central, at Central Michigan Life and an internship at Thoroughbred Times in 2008. Joe, a graduate, graduate of Central Mich- Michigan University, has written professionally for Thoroughbred Times, Daily Racing Form. An Arabian finish line. He joined the staff of the Pollock Report as its bloodstock editor in July of 2018. Joe's freelance work has been published in racing publications around the country, including Blood Horse magazine. Joe's a frequent guest on racing podcasts and co-hosted Arabian Racing Radio until its last episode in December 2018. Joe may be young, but in my humble opinion, with articles like Finding Charlie, The Edward P. Evans Dispersal five years later, and Biting the Dust, a long goodbye to Mount Pleasant Meadows, he's well on his way to joining the ranks of gifted and eloquent turf riders like Bill Knack, Steve Haskins, and Tim Layton. We'll talk about horses and racing, we'll check in on some of the recent horse racing stars who've become sires, the history of Breeders' Cup Championships, and the track at Santa Anita. We'll also discuss the field of horses racing on Future Stars Friday and the main events on Saturday, including pedigrees, trainers, jockeys, and post positions. We'll also do some handicapping and get predictions from Joe. We're a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Joe. I am producerless at the moment, so you weren't muted. But that's okay. Well, that's all right. I tried to stay quiet myself. That's, you were very quiet. Well, thank, thank you. <laughs>
2: and thank you so much for those kind words, Lisa. That's. Uh, can I just like hire you to follow me around and just say those things when I enter a room? That'd be great.
1: Of course. Yes. I'm I'm 54 <laughs> years old and I'm looking for a change in my life. I, I would Fantastic. love to do okay. that. <laughs>
2: I'll have my
1: people get in touch with your people. Great. Perfect. Yeah. Just just have Jitter call me exactly or have her message me (laughs) yes so all right well let's get this started um we are going to let i'm going to let you introduce yourself and talk about your family life and how you got into racing
2: well my name is joe nevels i'm based in georgetown kentucky i'm a native of edmore michigan where uh as you said in your intro i grew up around belgian draft horses my parents uh bred and raised those, we had stallions, we fold out babies, and mostly we just kind of fed them, looked at them, we tried to sell them, but it was, a lot of this was during the Great Recession, so no one was buying horses. But, you know, mostly we just raised them. Eventually we got into spotted drafts, so imagine a big Belgian draft horse, a horse that kind of looks like the Budweiser Clydesdale, but Mm -hmm. like a paint, so basically big and spotted, beautiful horses. So I had that part of my life, and then my grandpa (laughs) <laughs> and then my grandpa raised thoroughbreds and, and ran them at uh, Detroit race course, Great Lakes Downs in Muskegon. And the closest track to me, Mount Pleasant Meadows, uh, grew up about 35 minutes from there. And that was kind of my education in the equine realm. I had on both sides of the speed spectrum. I had the big, powerful, but slow Belgian draft horses. And then I had the fast thoroughbreds and I wanted to be involved in horse racing and I realized very quickly that I didn't want to be involved in mucking out stalls or putting up hay. So I figured, how can I keep myself in the business? I will write about them. So that's what I ended up doing. And that's has been my involvement in horse racing for geez, over a decade now.
1: And, and you really, you really are multi-talented because you've got the pedigree bloodstock aspect, but you're also good, a pretty good handicapper and uh, a pretty good, you know, tips on races and, and who the favorites are and where the money is and where it isn't.
2: Well, I try to, that's something that my uh, grandpa taught me very early. I place I placed my first winning bet when I was four years old on an Arabian horse at Mount Pleasant Meadows named fast dance. And I just, it's been something that I've followed ever since. And it's been tougher to keep up with the handicapping side of things just because work gets in the way. It's funny. I tell people I used to write for the Daily Racing Forum, which is the Bible of handicapping publications. Mm-hmm. And I actually had less time to handicap when I wrote for the handicapping publication than I did any time before then. But, you know, it's something that I try to keep close to me and something that I still do regularly for big events like the Breeders' Cup. I have the Haiku Handicapper segment in which I break down every horse in the field in the form of haiku which is something that we'll be discussing a little later this evening I'm sure
1: yes and and also at Joe's blog um, there's a link on the page uh, you can see his office screen caps for the 2018 Kentucky Derby which I personally <laughs> think should be a regular feature
2: <laughs> yes so for people not familiar with my website joenevels.com that's where I put a lot of sort of things that don't really have a home anywhere else either because they're too silly or out there just aren't tied to horse racing. And one thing that I did was handicap each race in, I mean each horse in the 2018 Kentucky Derby using a still screen cap from the television show, the office and use quotes from that, use pictures of it and actually ended up picking the winner. So that was pretty popular and it was just a way to, you know, Connect one silly thing that I like to another less silly thing that I mm-hmm.
1: like. And I, I have to say, I wasn't I wasn't a fan of The Office. I've seen a few episodes, and I haven't lived under a rock, so I kind of know what it was. But I even understood <laughs> them and, saw, and oh, good. You know, saw, oh, that works for that horse. <laughs> so you really have a good knack and a good feeling for things like that.
2: When something like that really clicks, it feels really good. and It just feels natural. And that's something that I've tried to do both with the office screen cap things and with the Haiku Handicapper is that there are enough people out there who are handicapping a horse. I mean a horse race straight up, just doing straightforward analysis, mm-hmm. and they do it a lot better and more accurate than I do. So I need to find a way to stand out because when it comes down to it, there are people that you know charge money for this service. It's people who are much more qualified than me. So I had to find my space and my niche in this, and my way was to handicap these races in the silliest ways possible. So by ben, writing haiku or by finding scenes from the office, that's my way to make my mark while also still getting my picks out there.
1: It works. And of course your turf <laughs> riding career, you were actually carrying a full-time class, ro- class load and while you were at Central Michigan, and – writing articles and full time for a publication in central Michigan. If I understood your, your resume correctly, that's amazing well, I worked for, to me. I,
2: well, I worked for the <laughs> college paper, central Michigan life. So that was, uh, you know, I did, I did, a, I did a year of service there and it taught me a lot about just deadlines and, you know, just working with other people And from that year with Central Michigan Life, I got an internship with Thoroughbred Times in 2008. That was the year between my uh, junior and senior years in college. And it was something that once I came back and I got a taste of what I wanted to be when I grew up, I just I couldn't go back to college paper anymore. So I decided not to write Mm -hmm. for CM Life anymore and went strictly into trying to pitch myself for uh, freelance work. And I started up my own racing blog, the Michigan Bread Claimer. In which I covered uh, topics on racing, specific, mostly specific to Michigan racing, and that was a very eventful time. The you know the the state of Michigan racing has been tough for the past nearly 20 years, so there's never been a shortage of things to write about. And you know I was kind of the main source for that. It ended up my silly little student blog ended up getting quoted in actual like newspapers. I think the Flint Journal picked up something I wrote once, and it got me you know wow. spots on radio shows and it definitely helped me build up my resume to eventually get a full-time job in writing about horse racing that I wouldn't be able to otherwise I had to become my own publication so I could get those reps and show people that I was capable of writing things because sometimes you got to kick the door down
1: yourself right exactly and bravo to <laughs> you for for doing well, that thank and you. now with Michigan bread uh Thoroughbred, strictly Thoroughbred, or was it Thoroughbred Arabian? Because I, I understand you had both Thoroughbred and Arabian racing in Michigan. Yeah,
2: in, Michi- in Michigan, and particularly Mount Pleasant Meadows when I was there, they had racing for Thoroughbreds, Quarter Horses, Arabians, and Paints. So basically if it had four legs and goes nay, there was a race for it, and I was there to cover it. Um, I did a lot of work. um, Eventually, my first full-time paying gig was actually with a magazine called Arabian Finish Line, which focused on Arabian racing around the country and around the world. And it's, you know, they just ceased publication earlier this year, which I was sad to hear about, but I was with them for nearly a decade. And they really helped me get connections and again, get reps, which If you're out here and you're an aspiring journalist, all I can say is repetition. Get those works back. Get those works in and just keep going at it. And this is the kind of thing that helped me do that. And eventually, Mm -hmm. Arabian Finish Line led me into uh, co-hosting a podcast, Arabian Racing Radio, which helped me have this – the dulcet radio tone voices that you're hearing in your speakers right now are largely because of Arabian
1: Racing Radio, and I'll forever be grateful for that. Yes, I thank Stephanie as well. And yes, you really, exactly. You do. Stephanie you've got a good you, You've got a good presence. <laughs> I can, I can <laughs> well, see I from that. and hear, you know, great presence. And uh, of course, you have your lovely wife, Natalie, and her. Yes, that's Eclipse Award winner, Natalie Voss. Thoroughbred Eclipse Award winning. I apologize, Natalie. I, I did leave that out. And her. Human trainer, thoroughbred draft cross, Jitterbug.
2: Now, Jitterbug, let, let me preface this by saying that in my day job as a bloodstock writer, I deal with some of the most famous, the most expensive, the most successful thoroughbreds on the planet. I've touched horses that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and Jitterbug by far is the most famous successful and best riding horse that i have come to deal with and if she's out there listening to this i hope she heard that but jitterbug is a very popular horse she's a thoroughbred percheron cross who uh, was actually feral at one point she was born in michigan she's a michigan bred just like me and she spent the first five years of her life basically out in a field getting no handling and natalie and a college friend eventually uh Came into her presence when she came down to Kentucky, and Natalie eventually ended up buying her, and Jitterbug's 15 years old now, and it's just been a journey over the past decade plus to, for them to train each other, for Natalie to train her and to Jitterbug to teach her about the ways of life. And Jitterbug teaches others about the ways of life through her uh, column on Chronicle of the Horse and through her uh, very big Facebook following, if you, you, you can follow her on Facebook on at Jitterbug, and she will give you all sorts of tips on if're you're, if you're a horse out there on Facebook wanting to learn about how to train your human, this is a site for you.
3: Correct.
1: And cats and dogs can also get in touch with Jitterbug and report to her and get advice from her on their issues because she apparently has all of your your farm cats and dogs uh, working for her oh, and yes. reporting Jitterbug. to her.
2: Jitterbug has a large staff of assistants of all sorts of different species, both equine, feline, canine, and otherwise, to help in the training process of humans and occasionally contribute with either photographs or posing for things or just other sorts of advice.
1: And letting when you go to the when you go to the tack room feed room she's too, she can't get there she's got to know what's going on it makes exactly. perfect sense you know you to have me. to ha-
2: you have to have your eyes and ears all over the place to truly understand what's going on in your business and jitterbug knows this fully well so she
1: is a wise mare
2: <laughs> yes <laughs> and again just so people out there know who so people out there know what we're talking about if you're listening to this on your laptop go to facebook search jitterbug It's the horse with the big white blaze on her face. You can't miss her, and she's a worthwhile follow. Um, Also available on Instagram and Twitter at jitterbug underscore horse.
1: All right. And then finally, uh, the hat. Whenever we see you on uh, appearances and YouTube, just search Joe Nevels, you have your hat. and Could you give us a little bit of background on that? So, my
2: first off, I know you can't see it out here in Radioland, but I've just got a really big head. There's no way around it. Like, most hats don't fit my head. So I have a particular hat that's shaped and fitted very well for it. And one of my favorite musical artists is a country singer named Chris Ledoux. He uh, was a champion bareback rider on the rodeo scene, and he sang a lot of songs about rodeo life and taught Garth Brooks a lot about what he knows about country music and entertaining crowds, Chris Ledoux would ride a uh, electrical bull on stage, you know, like the kind that you would see in bars. And he would do that in the middle Mm -hmm. of songs, like they'd be playing a solo and he'd jump on this thing and ride it around for eight seconds. So I wear a, now it's a gray Chris Ledoux hat. It's not black, like on the website. And it's sort of become my trademark because, you know, people seem to like Chris Ledoux. It's a very good conversation starter. People either like him, and we can talk about that. They don't know about him, and I can give them a musical rec- recommendation. And I haven't met anyone yet who both doesn't know him and doesn't like him. And, frankly, if I ever meet that person, I'm not that interested. So There's you know, a fight. It's, you'll, it's... you'll fight him. Exactly. I mean, come on, be honest. Th- there's a good chance. <laughs> <laughs> so I might have I to had, put up my boots.
1: I, I had not heard of him, but I, and I thought with a name like Ladue, he's got to be from Louisiana. But he's from Wyoming.
2: Well, he was uh, born in Texas originally, but he was a Navy brat, so he moved around a lot and oh. he eventually settled in Wyoming. And that was, you know, a lot of his songs are about living in Wyoming and just living out in the prairie, and it's just it's it's good cowboy music.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and sadly for for those who don't know, he passed away in 2005. 2005, 2006, was. something in that range.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But... It's a shame. It's you know he's he's one that I got into him after he died, so I never got the chance to see his live shows, which is really one of my great regrets. Because like I said, he goes he goes all out for the live performances. He sings a song called Copenhagen, in which they people in the people in the crowd have the tins of Copenhagen and throw it on stage at him. They actually got to a point where they had to throw down a net for the song. So the band wouldn't get clogged so by like, the things of Copenhagen wow. getting thrown on the stage, and it became a big oh, gag. Wow. Like people started doing it on purpose. Like they weren't doing it because it was a bad song. They did it because that's just kind of what you do for the that Copenhagen what... song.
1: <laughs> amazing, amazing. Mm-hmm. So and all it's right, been well, fascinating let's... to go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, oh, go, uh, no, no, go go ahead. Oh. It's, it's, it's
2: been fascinating to hear the stories because a lot of people that I've met in the horse industry have known Chris Ledoux through his rodeo days. And I'll run into people who I would never expect to have stories about him that, you know, we'll go on a 15 minute conversation about something he did at a rodeo in, you know, Texas or somewhere 20, 30 years ago. So it's a really good conversation starter.
1: That is, that is amazing. I mean, I'm from, my family's from Delaware. My dad's from the north, my mom's from the south, and that's that's how our lives are. You run into somebody, you talk to them for a few minutes, and you realize how much you have in common. Oh yeah. Rather than just being strangers yeah. on the street. So mm-hmm. I I I love that kind of thing. I might get a Christmas do and start wearing it.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you know, that's it. Sometimes it just takes that little prompt and you can become somebody's good friend.
1: Mhm-hmm, All right. So well, let's get into the blood. Now this is the bloodstock. Your bread and butter. Um, <laughs> and I have some questions about. These are some of the some of the the colts who I personally love to death. Uh, they're among my favorites. Although I love them all, and uh, I just have a, a few little questions. First off, of course, is American Pharaoh, Triple Crown, Grand, Grand Slam winner. His hmm. first crop have hit the tracks as two-year-olds. His yearlings and weanlings, and when we say weanling, about how old are they?
2: Uh, a weanling is any horse that has yet to turn one year old. And okay. technically, on the third red calendar, uh, you – move up a year on January 1st, no matter what part of the year you're born in. So, uh, basically a weanling is any horse that hasn't officially turned one yet. So that's any horse that's six months old, eight months old, uh, 11 months old, anything before that. Okay. Until the the time they're born until
1: December 31st, they're a weanling.
2: And weanlings technically, well, weanlings technically also are ones that have been weaned from their mothers. So, um, you know, these these are ones that have already been separated and are sort of gaining their independence.
1: Okay. All right. And they're cute little buggers too. Oh, they're absolutely. (laughs) We're we're coming
2: into the, we're coming into the fall auction season where a lot of weanlings are going to be sold and it's fun to just kind of go out and you know play with them a little bit and, you know, just Mm -hmm. see how tiny they are and appreciate their cute noses and stuff.
1: But, uh, as we, as I started to say, uh, his Pharaohs weanlings and yearlings have done well at the sales, and he recently had a yearling filly who sold for eight point two million. Of course, she's also mm-hmm. a daughter of Leslie's Lady, who is the broodmare of broodmares right now, uh, because she's been able to produce such great talent. But are his two-year-olds living up to? the auction uh, prices that he he earned and the I guess hype about him as a triple crown grand slam winner
2: you know so far so good where uh he's at this point the leading first crop freshman stallion in a lot of categories I'm pulling this up right now to make absolutely sure but He's, let's see, yeah, he's the top. Uh, His progeny earnings are the best of any North American first-year stallion right now. He has the most winners, I believe. Yes, he does. And this is what he should be doing right now. He got the best book of mares in his first year at stud in recent memory. He got some of the best on the racetrack, some of the best producing mares. He has every reason to succeed at this point, and he has several horses entered in this weekend's Breeders' Cup, and that could boost his resume even further. He's checking every box you want to see at this point. He's already had grade one winners. He's had horses win on dirt. He's had horses win on turf, which is kind of fun because he never ran on turf himself. But uh, he's had horses win in America. He's had horses win in Europe. So this is a horse that has gotten a broad base of mare population. And
1: so far everything's been running. And and he's also going to have Horses running in the Southern Hemisphere.
2: Yes, he's been staying in he's Australia. he's stands...
1: Australia.
2: Yep. He uh, stands for the Coolmore Partnership, which is a group based in Ireland, but they have stallion stations all over the world. So he spends the Northern Hemisphere season from about January to midsummer, in, uh at Ashford Stud in Versailles, Kentucky. And then he goes down to Coolmore's Australian base for the Southern Hemisphere season, which is the rest of the summer into the fall, and then comes back up here for the winter and starts to sequence all over again. Wow.
1: Well, good. I'm, I'm really happy to see. And, you know, I personally thought he was doing well, but it's good to hear because for example, Secretariat, he has become a broodmare producer, but he did not do that well or his progeny didn't do that well, by and large, at the races. Although they passed see, on the, some good genes.
2: So, I think Secretariat gets kind of a bad rap when it comes to his he, – he has become – he was a very – he did become a very good broodmare sire, but he did sire a horse of the year. He did do – You know, he had some very good runners. I think with Secretariat, a lot of the knock on him was that the hype was just so impossibly high for him that – if he didn't come out of the gate swinging a lot like American Pharaoh has, uh, he was going to be labeled as a failure, and people just didn't, you know, he, if it if you would have put any other sire on the name other than Secretariat, he would have been viewed as a very successful horse. But the fact that the expectations were so high for him, and he perhaps didn't meet them, but at least got very close, I think a lot of people kind of give him a bad break when it comes to oh. his legacy as a sire of runners.
1: Okay, now I I learned something new because my you know, my understanding had always been that he, he wasn't successful aside from being the broodmare producer that he was where his daughters right. had gone on and, and, and really improved.
2: Yeah. And that's, and that's absolutely his legacy. Like his, his he's going to be remembered in the stud books as, you know, a, a broodmare sire. That's where his best work was. And I'm trying to remember, I'm pulling it up right now, who his, uh, Horse of the year was, it was Lady Secret. Lady Secret, the uh, 1986 Horse of the Year. So, okay. you know, he had a General Assembly who won the Traverse Stakes and set a track record that stood for 37 years. Uh, Risen Star won the Preakness in Belmont. That's another son of Secretariat. He had a Melbourne Cup winner in Australia, Kingston Rule. So, he's, you know, he did very well for himself. He was far from an absolute dud when it came to siring runners. It was just, again, sec- it Secretariat is one of, if not the best horses to ever set foot on the track, and he didn't, he, was, he, he didn't do exactly the same thing as a stallion, and I think people knock him for it.
1: Yeah, or maybe it's just that his progeny didn't um, dazzle people the way, even though they were good and they were fast, They weren't as, mm-hmm. they weren't as accomplished as he was, perhaps. Oh, uh, or has accomplished absolutely. in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm.
2: And that makes me think of something going back to American Pharaoh is when it comes to replicating oneself. American Pharaoh has done a fantastic job of passing his genes along to his foals. He has a lot of horses that are absolute carbon copies of himself when it comes to the head, the shoulder, um, body type, even the color. Like most of them look like little American Pharaohs. And that's. Early mm-hmm. on, that's what you want to
1: see from a stallion. Right. And his temperament. Because as I understand yes, it, American he's, Pharaoh, he's a sweetie.
2: Famously a sweetie. And that's something that I've yet to see a rank, gnarly American Pharaoh on the sale grounds. Like they all seem to have that good mind to them. Mm-hmm.
1: Not like Tappets, where you have to walk them, hand walk them with a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's
2: that, that's something that i've heard about a lot of tapas and you definitely have to give them some extra leeway but they're i've also heard from them that a lot of their aggression and stuff is mostly because they're so bored and inquisitive they're like a i don't know they're mm-hmm. like an energetic toddler almost where you know they're getting into trouble but they're getting in trouble because they just need something to keep themselves occupied it's not like i'm going to bite you because i want to kill you it's i want to bite yeah. you because i'm bored and want to play Correct. Now there are and, now there are some that do have the I will bite you to kill you thing go that, that goes on, but I don't <laughs> think it's one of those.
1: By and large, no, no. Uh, another sweet one, uh, sweet disposition, loves to sleep, is Run Happy. Mm-hmm. And if you watch Fox Sports at all on Saturday and Sunday, you hear about Run Happy a lot.
2: Oh yeah. That ad campaign is relentless. And uh, for my job with the Pollock report, I also do a lot of advertising work. So um, we deal with the run happy folks from time to time. And it's, you know, they have had no shortage of ways of getting out in front of people and getting run happy on the mind. And his first foals are weanlings right now. So they're not Mm -hmm. going to race until next year, but they're looking very good. They are very good, run happy with a champion sprinter and his foals have that sprinters build to them. They're very muscular and they're selling exceedingly well. They're selling beyond his stud fee, and people seem to really like him so far.
0: hmm
1: And they will probably like to sleep a lot if they're anything like Daddy. And he seems <laughs> to also be throwing them carbon copies of himself.
2: Mm-hmm. I Brown, don't disagree with you at all on that. But. They
1: <laughs> – good mind, good walks. Um, so – Now, how about Nyquist? He is an Uncle Mo, but I believe he's at Jonabelle or Darley? Yep,
2: it's uh, Darley. It's owned by uh, Sheik. Which was
1: a surprise.
2: Yeah, that's uh, Darley bought in on Nyquist. Uh, Darley is, uh, they have Jonabelle Farm in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. This is owned by the ruler of Dubai. So this is uh, one of the Sheiks in the Middle East. A lot of money there. And... uh, Nyquist is from the first crop of Uncle Mo. He was a champion two-year-old and then went on to win the Kentucky Derby. And he's another one whose first foals are yearlings this year, so his first crop will run next year. And another one Mm -hmm. that has done very, very well in the marketplace and another one that's passed himself on very well. Uh, When Nyquist first retired to Darley in Lexington, uh, he had a little bit of filling out to do. And then I went to see mm-hmm. him the next winter, and he was a, a full-grown man. And that's being yeah. passed on to his foals. Just excellent muscle, um, excellent walks to them, and I think they're going to do very well. Uncle Mo is a, still a fairly young sire himself. He's, Nyquist is from his first crop, so we're just starting to see the sons of Uncle Mo get their foals out there. And if this is an evidence of what Uncle Mo is going to be as a sire of sires, we could have something serious on our hands here.
1: Wonderful. I I can't wait to see him. And then, of course, we've got 2014 Heartbreak California Chrome, uh, who was a uh, bargain breeding for his uh, mom-and-pop owners, who went on to win the Kentucky Derby and Preakness Stakes, and then, after a year off, went to Dubai and won the Dubai World Cup with his saddle, and Victor Espinosa, not in the proper position on his back. <laughs>
0: um,
1: yeah, And who that's... everybody says has outrun his pedigree. He was mm-hmm. lucky pulpit out of uh, Love the Chase.
2: Mm-hmm. This horse is the American dream when it comes to what you hope for raising a racehorse. This horse should have been by all rights, by all rights on his pedigree, by all rights from where he came up from. He should have been a nice California horse, you know, maybe, you know, won some maidens, won some stakes races, but stayed local. And he retired as the highest earning Kentucky Derby winner of all time with earnings of, I want to say, I forget what the number is off the top of my head. I want to say something in the 10
1: to $14 million range. 14 to 16 Yeah, it was 14 to 16 yeah. somewhere in there. Uh, so... And I it's I don't just, think it's, anyone has has beaten it yet.
2: In terms of Kentucky Derby winners, they haven't. Uh, a horse named Arrogate beat him for a North American earnings record. He's at $16 million, I believe. Because he, okay. uh, yeah, he won the Breeders' Cup Classic, the Traverse Stakes, the Dubai World Cup, and the uh, Pegasus World Cup Invitational down at Gulfstream. He went nuts for this four-race streak of expensive races and just raked in the money but California Chrome was the one that he surpassed on that. And, you know, just the way that he did it too, he came up, California Chrome came up kind of modestly in the California bred ranks, and then jumped up into graded stakes competition, started beating all of these expensive Kentucky Derby type horses, and then won the Kentucky Derby and then won the Preakness. And then he ran respectively in the Belmont and he just kept going after that. And a lot of horses Mm -hmm. don't, run until they're four or five when they have a resume like that. And Chrome just keep running and just kept winning. And he's just, when you pull a m- full out of a mare, this is what you hope happens. Whether you're mm-hmm. in the richest farm in Kentucky or whether you're some backyard breeder in you know Wyoming, like this is what you're dreaming about when you are bre- planning a mating and when you're pulling the full out of the mare and when you, put the saddle on them and hope they go this is what you hope happens it's california chrome and now he's going to have a lot of foals to keep that dream going
1: right and he's uh they're doing pretty well at the sales or have they made have they made because he's he's in the same uh first crop in the same year as uh nyquist and run happy so he probably has weanlings he has
2: uh, first yearlings right now. So these are horses that are a year old. Yep. So these are horses that are a year old. Once again, those will be uh, two-year-olds. They'll start running next year. And uh, when it comes to commercial reception, they haven't been quite as hot as the Nyquist and the Run Happies, but he's been doing perfectly fine on his own right, um, more than paying his stud fee for an average sale price. And he's got a lot of foals in that first crop, so he's going to have every chance to succeed.
1: Right. And if the two-year-olds perform well and show precocity, because I think that's what – that was what he had was the precocity at a young age to outrun Mm -hmm. the pedigrees on paper.
2: Yep, and that's the thing. You have to show to get get on the Kentucky Derby Trail 99 times out of 100. You have to be able to show something at two to warrant – building up going up that ladder so by the time you're early in your three-year-old campaign you're running in kentucky derby prep races against other horses pointed toward the race because you know the kentucky derby comes up awfully fast and you have to be good at the right time and california chrome climbed that ladder and he did it the right way and he won the derby and then some
1: yeah and took a year off between four and five yep and then came back at six and surpassed.
2: just kept winning there too, <laughs> yeah,
1: so it was uh, I was worried between four and five. I thought there's no way yeah, he... when he comes back at six, but he was even better, and that happens with with a lot of horses, um yeah, you two know, and three injuries is actually happen. not the best time, mhm. You know,
2: injuries happen and sometimes horses take more time to come into themselves. California Chrome is the type of horse that seemed to be at his peak for a, you know, practically a five-year span, but, you know, he came up with a little bit of a illness and injury. He went to Europe and was going to try to race there after uh, running in the Dubai World Cup. And he kind of, I don't know, he, he didn't really take to that lifestyle. So he came back, they gave him some time off and sometimes time off is the best thing for a horse. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like anybody. You need you need your time to, you know, take a breather and take a step back from what you're doing. And sometimes you come back more refreshed and better than ever. And that was definitely the case with California Chrome. He came back and won Horse of <laughs> the Year again.
1: Right. And uh, then we've got uh, Classic Empire, who is uh, out of Pioneer of the uh, Pioneer of the Nile, out of Sambuca. I never can remember her name. Sambuca Classica. Classica, okay. And of course the late yep. pioneer of the Nile, so like American pharaoh, he's carrying on the empire maker branch
0: mm-hmm. of
1: the sire line. And when will you know it become the American pharaoh branch or the classic empire branch or even the pioneer of the Nile branch? Well, the Pioneer of the Nile branch is
2: happening as we speak, because both Classic Empire and American Pharaoh stand at Coolmore's Ashford Stud in uh, Versailles. So they're both working out of the same—they're basically on the same team here. And they're going to be mm-hmm. at the forefront of establishing Pioneer of the Nile as a sire of sires, because they have to be successful to bring that out of the next generation so they can become sires. So we're seeing that happen as we speak with American Pharaoh. who has got his first year olds running right now. Uh, classic empire has his first weanlings right now that will be hitting the sale. So they'll be running in a couple of years. I actually went out to see classic empire a couple months ago for our, in the stud video series that we shoot on the Pollock report. And he's looking fantastic. He has grown into himself very well. He was a champion two year old and now he's a few years older now, but he's settled into himself and, you know, pioneer of the Nile was himself a very athletic horse. His foals were athletic mm-hmm. types, and you can see that in Classic Empire. And I think that's going to be something that he – that's going to be a trademark of his foals and something that he takes from Pioneer of the Nile is that athleticism,
1: I think. Great. Yeah, I've, I've watched In the Stud. I love that. I, that's when I really want to follow you around is whenever <laughs> you do the In the studs, And the, the one where you went to visit Arrogate. Uh, he was getting feisty, and your cameraman cut it off. He was getting ready to rear. And your cameraman was like, oh, wait, no, we don't yeah. want to show that. And <laughs> it's like, no, that's the best part. Yeah. He was being a stallion.
2: Well, for those, we're trying to get the video of him on the walk mostly because we're, try- we're trying to aim those for potential breeders, and they like to see how the horse moves and how the horse carries himself. So for those videos, we try to balance a little bit between – him, the horse doing cool stuff and the horse doing stuff that, you know, the people who are making investments need Pretty. to see. So it was it was it, it was it was a tough balance for that, but they, they they gave him a lot of time to jump around in that video, I think.
1: Well, they the the final version had, you know, nice walking and and um, nice interview, but but not him doing Black Beauty paw in the air (laughs) which I love the personalities of horses because growing up with horses and ponies at my great-grandfather's during the summer um, although we had an atypical mare she was a former thoroughbred brood mare but she Mm -hmm. did not have an ounce of attitude in her Hmm. there was nothing in life that was not agreeable for her and she was just the sweetest, kindest uh, lady, and I think she thought all the little ponies – she fold twins who died, and I think she thought all the little ponies were her babies nah. because she just kind of was the, the grand dame of the pasture.
2: <laughs> and, and you know, and, uh, those are the kind of horses that you remember for a
1: lifetime. Mhm. And I wish I could find out who she really was. But I didn't know about the tattoos in their lips when I was a kid. Uh. <laughs> so <laughs> – and my my grandfather, I think, bought her at an auction when they decided that they weren't going to breed her anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, the history is lost, uh, <laughs> and every day I wish I could find her. So – All right, so uh, Gunrunner, he's also going to have – he's got his weanlings now. Any word on how he's doing? Well, I haven't
2: seen a whole lot of his uh, foals yet, and we're going to be uh, seeing the first real test for the weanling sires when it comes to the market during the uh, fall mix sales coming up after the Breeders' Cup. So in terms of market reception for his foals, that's a story that's about to be written but he got a lot of mares in terms of breeder interest and in giving mares to him. He was very active in his first year and that carried over into his second year. And he's another one that's going to have every possible chance to succeed.
1: Great. Well, we'll, we'll maybe we'll revisit this uh, next year. Absolutely. <laughs> so see how they're doing. And then of course, justify <laughs> also triple crown winner. Uh, didn't mm-hmm. have a chance to pursue a grand slam because of an ankle issue, which could that have been related just to his sheer size? I mean, he's it's only very sixteen point three, Justify but he's twelve hundred pounds.
2: He's stout. I tell you what, that's mm-hmm. it's it's interesting seeing a horse on the track and under saddle, and seeing a you know a jockey on him, and then seeing the horse with nothing on just in front of you. And it's amazing how muscular Justify is. You don't really appreciate the size until you step up on him. And he's a big boy. And mm-hmm. that's, I, you know, his first foals will arrive uh, this winter. So we don't know what yeah. he's going to pass on, but he bred 252 mares in 2019, which was tied for the most of any stallion in North America. Wow. So he's Yeah. And I wrote something about his uh, first book of mares and the absolute murderer's row of mares that he got. We're talking horses of the year. We're talking some of the dams of some of the most successful and important horses on the racetrack and in the stud, he got a book that was comparable to American Pharaoh in his first year. So the expectations are going to be sky high for him to, Match what American Pharaoh's is doing right now, if not exceed it.
1: Oh wow! And he's one of those horses that I think is more just intelligent and just, you know, he's the boss. He knows he's great. It's his world, and we all just live in it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: As
1: far it's a as temperament and personality.
0: Contra-
2: yeah, it's a it's a fascinating compare and contrast between Justify and American Pharaoh because they both stand at the same farm. Justify also stands at Ashford stud and American Pharaoh is a puppy dog. He loves the camera. He loves people. He'll do whatever you want with him. And as you said, Justify is a little more live and let live. He's not exactly a, I'm going to stand here and pose for the camera as long as you need me to type of horse. He mm-hmm. does his thing. And if you're part of that thing, cool. And if you're not, then okay. Thanks, bye. You. And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm still Justify and I'm going to go on with my day. So it's, it's, yeah. it's been interesting because we've had two Triple Crown winners so close together, and then they end up living at the same farm to see how those two you know, pathways mix up and how they you know, diverge from each other.
1: There, there was a picture on Facebook where it appeared that Justify was bowing to American Pharaoh. I don't know if you happen <laughs> to catch that one. And, I haven't, um, but you, know,
2: you got res- to respect the original.
1: Although I I think American Pharaoh would be more like the Big, big Brother. Come on, I'm going to show you the ropes, kid.
0: <laughs> I believe <laughs> so, that.
1: So, um and he always uh, American Pharaoh also always had he had a confidence about him. Yes. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't skittish or worried about anything. Uh he was curious about everything. So, you know, they're kind of on par as far as alpha confidence goes. It's just how they choose to carry themselves and justify themselves squarely on the head there. For, you know, he doesn't have time for anything outside of what he wants. I mean, he was that way as a foal, according Mm -hmm. to Tanya Gunther. You know, yeah, he always knew it's he, fa- he was it's, something. And it's fascinating.
2: It's kind of a nature-nurture debate thing, too, is that, you know, every horse comes from a different place, and they have different personalities. And these two horses are both alphas, but both, you know, they're different horses when it comes to how they're around. And they've both ended up Triple Crown winners and standing at the same place. So these are mm-hmm. two different roads that lead to the same place.
1: And then finally, Mendelssohn. Uh he is a uh his sa his damn is Leslie's Lady, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um Scat Daddy, of course. Duh. Yep. <laughs> How could I forget poor Scat Daddy? <laughs> um but and he's also at Coolmore with American Pharaoh and Justify and they're all three in Australia right now. Yep. And he yeah, also Mendelsohn. won't have any any babies hit in the ground till next beginning in January.
2: Yes. Him and justify debuted in the same season. They're both sons of scat daddy and they both covered 252 mares. Like th- these, these are the two horses that covered the co most mares of uh, 2019 and Mendelssohn was born to be doing exactly what he's doing. He's a son of scat daddy. Who's the hottest commercial sire going right now partially because he partially because Scott daddy died a few years ago. So he's mm-hmm. had this fantastic success and he's a collector's item now. And on the bottom, you have Leslie's lady who, as you mentioned is the broodmare to top all broodmares right now. Mendelssohn's sister is the one that topped the Keeneland September sale this year for 8 million and change. And just or Mendelssohn is also a half brother to multiple eclipse award winner beholder and into mischief. Who's the leading Sire by earnings right now. he's the top sire going. He's the top veteran sire by marriage bread. He was just a few behind justifying Mendelssohn in terms of how many he covered this year. And there's just everything leads to Mendelssohn being a successful stallion, and he fits the bill. He himself sold for, I believe, three million as a yearling, and he became a multiple graded and group stakes, stakes winner on the track. He did his, he checked that box. And he's Mm -hmm. got the physical. He looks fantastic. He's everything that you would want to be in a stallion, and he's at a pretty reasonable price, too. I want to say he's in the $35,000 range, which for you and me is a lot of money. But in the stallion marketplace for a horse with his bona fides, that's not too bad. I think he's going to make a lot of people look very smart. Yes. And
1: what I wonder, though, is he still as vocal now that he's no longer at the track. (laughs) <laughs> because that was the thing that I loved about him—you knew where Mendelssohn was when he was there, because you heard him, mm-hmm. and it was—it was delightful.
2: Oh yeah, it's it's always interesting when it's it's almost like professional wrestling, where certain mm-hmm. you know wrestlers have their entrance and they have the music and they have their ways of making themselves known that they have arrived. And some of the, some of my favorite horses have ways to do that too. You know, Mendelssohn has his, you know, his squealing and rearing. Zenyatta had her famous sort of like war dance where she'd really take the long steps out when she'd walk in the paddock and, you know, Mm -hmm. really sort of establish herself as the alpha of the paddock. You know, it's, it's cool when horses have trademarks like that, that you remember them for, because those can last Mm -hmm. long after the horse has been on the racetrack.
1: Yeah. I think Zenyatta's dance was dressage. And now Cosmic <laughs> One, and hopefully soon, uh, Ziconic will be excelling in the dressage world. From what she passed to them, for that. Yeah, that's they're moving
2: into that field. Cosmic One's been doing it for a while now, and you know it's a shame that they weren't able to live up to the hype on the racetrack. We're talking about you know going back to Secretariat, you know great horses mm-hmm. who didn't quite pass that on to the level of themselves. You know, Zenyatta has got a lot of ground to make up on that, but you know, if they go on and do something with their lives, even if it's just standing out in the field and making someone happy, then, you know, that's, that's doing something. That's every horse has value.
1: If you've ever watched cosmic one, I mean, even when he first went to uh, the retired racehorse project program, he was a natural in the way he moved and the way he held himself. And he really did excel. Um, and he's calmed down. I mean, I can remember seeing a picture of him rearing up, and I think he was trying to strike at John Sharif.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, because he just, I don't think yeah. he liked, I don't think he took to the track or the environment or atmosphere. You
2: know, it's it's possible, you know, some horses just, you know, don't make, just don't make it as race horses. And he had especially high, I don't know, he, he was going to get as many chances to decide to become a racehorse just because of, you know, the following that he had. This horse had, I remember when cosmic one was born, anything that we wrote about him would be the most read thing on our website. For days Mm -hmm. and days and days and days, people could not get enough of this horse. So, unless he came up with some sort of compelling reason to not race, they were at least going to give him a shot. And, you know, there are a lot of horses out there who just decide that racing's not for them. And, you know, he just happened to be one of them. He just happened to be a very famous example of one that didn't decide that racing wasn't for them. You know, it's just like a kid who, a high school kid who decides that
1: football's not for them. Right. And, you know, I've heard, it's it's funny, I've heard a lot of uh, handicappers, and one thing they said is horses are herd animals, and some just want to stay with the rest of the herd. And others want to get ahead of the herd and not let anybody buy. And those are the ones that succeed. And I think that might have been uh, either Gary Stevens or Richard Migliori. <laughs> pointed that out. So. Yeah, it's
2: it's fascinating you bring that up because there are uh there's a bloodstock agent named uh Carrie Thomas who actually specializes in herd dynamics in racehorses. And that's his entire thing is breaking down how a horse manages himself around the horses around him, how um you know he reacts to you know various stimuli and he can come up with this entire profile of a horse. He actually did this for Jitterbug once and sort of decides what things they might be best at based on how they react to their surroundings. And he's been very good at picking Kentucky Derby winners with this.
1: Oh, wow. That is a fascinating topic.
2: Yeah. It's the Thomas Herding technique. Cheap plug. Hope I get some money out of that.
1: (laughs) Okay. I will definitely have to try and look, and I'm going to, I'm going to find your, your article about, uh, the first book of mares, was it Justify's first book? Yep. Yeah, it's, okay, it's I'm gonna find stunning that. how many good mares he got. Yeah, and, well, and American Pharaoh did as well. So. Oh, yeah. That's, um,
2: both of them got two of the best books that, frankly, I've ever seen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm definitely – I didn't come across that article, but I will find it on my Kindle tonight. I'll tell you, so, it's all right it's, now
2: it's, I, I i'm
1: a, oh, oh, go
0: go ahead. Ahead.
2: sorry, oh, I was just gonna say i'll i'll make sure i'll make sure that gets in your inbox,
1: don't you worry about that perfect, perfect <laughs> uh so now we'll we'll move on to breeders cup uh this is like the super Bowl and the world Series of horse racing and the n b a playoffs it's everything it decides the future stars or shows some glimpse into the future and it defines the best horses in the older horses for this particular racing year mm-hmm.
2: you know i'd almost call it the olympics of horse racing almost because you have all of these different events everybody has their own specialties Horses and people come in from all over the world to compete here. And it's a, you know, it's, it's quite the spectacle. It's really, as you said, this will decide many of the year end championships horse of the year is going to be on the line here, uh, champion, two-year-old, definitely champion three-year-old. Um, there's, there are very few divisions of the eclipse awards that are already zipped up. And mm-hmm. a lot of questions will be answered by the end of the weekend based on the results of these races.
1: Right. And it started in 1984, so uh, you can't really compare Secretariat, Seattle Flu or Affirmed because there was no Breeders' Cup. Uh, right. there, I think there was an equivalent tr- championship-like event, but yeah, I'm not they, sure they, they what tried it was. A few things that-
2: They've tried a few things over the years, but the Breeders' Cup really took off and stuck and has really expanded into a staple of the calendar. It's basically the – if the Kentucky Derby is the kind of big game at the end, or I guess the Triple Crown races are the big game at the end of the first part of the year, the Breeders' Cup is the grand finale of the second part of the year.
1: Right. So – and then it's going to be Santa Anita – at uh, in California, Arcadia, California, which is near San Diego, if I'm not correct, if not mistaken. Uh, Los Angeles. Oh, it's near Los Angeles. Del Mar is by, yep. by yeah. San Diego. Uh, Del okay. Mar, San Diego. Yep. I, I've i never been to California, so <laughs> I don't know where anything <laughs> Well, in. neither have I, so that's. <laughs> um, and they have been around. Uh, since the 30s, and when did Strona Group acquire Santa Anita because they operated during the 30s and 40s and 50s?
2: Yeah, it's bit within the last I want to say fifteen or twenty years because the Stronic Group they let's see since twenty eleven. I just pulled that up. Yeah, they bought it in twenty eleven.
1: Okay. And um I love I love listening, watching the races at, at Santa Anita because their track announcer is uh he's uh English or Australia He's actually South African. South African, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So <laughs> I
2: believe i am going to uh, pull, it up. We, I'm course... pull it up Yep, he is South
1: African. He's South African, okay. Um and uh, of course we do we we have to talk about briefly at least the um the death at the track but in the articles that I read, there were some injury, but then there were horses who were ill, heart attacks, a few, it seems like everybody lumps, they died at the track, it's it's the track's fault, when if it's colic, it's not the track's fault. Colic mm-hmm. is something that happens, uh, as much as you try and manage, it's, you know, it's an intestinal digestive problem.
2: Yeah. And it's for, for those unfamiliar, um, Santa Anita park over the past really since December 26th of last year has been under public scrutiny for a series of uh, racetrack fatalities. Um, some, some of them have been on the racetrack. And as you've mentioned, some of them have been back in the barn area due to, you know, colic or illness or what have you. And it's gained a lot of, it's picked up national steam by, uh, you know, animal rights groups have been on Santa Anita's case on this. It's definitely gotten a lot of uh, press in the mainstream media. It's forced horse racing to take a good long look at itself and really assess not only what's going on at Santa Anita, but what's going on with the sport at large because people are starting to really pay attention to the welfare of the horse. And mm-hmm. when, you know, obviously no, no, nobody wants to see a horse break down and get injured on the racetrack and, you know, God forbid, you know, be, be put down on the racetrack or anywhere else. And it's difficult with horses, whether it's race horses or anything in particular, because an injury for an athlete, like a broken leg for a human, you can just tell them to stay off it. And, Correct. you know, they stay off it for a, a period of time, they get better, they can get back out there but horses, you can't tell them to stay off it. They, they're a flight creature. Like they well, you know, there are surgeries that can be done for certain injuries, but if there are other ones that are too severe, you know, there's mm-hmm. not much you can do about it. So the animal has to be put down. And that's Correct. something that um, it's, and it makes it difficult because with any sport, there are going to be injuries. So yeah. that's, it's, it's, it's a hard reality of the sport. And it's something that slowly but surely the sports leadership has come to realize and is working to address. Um, There's definitely a long road to go and the media attention hasn't gotten any better. And this, this Breeders' Cup, I myself, and a lot of people that I know are going to be watching very closely and are going to be holding our breaths very deeply because the eyes of the world are going to be on here. And Santa Anita has been ground zero for the horse breakdown you know, the the, the whole narrative of the thing. right? But on the plus side, Santa Anita in particular has been very proactive in in improving their safety features. They've done a lot with the racing surface. They've done a lot with safety protocols, with doing better vet checks before the horses even get onto the track and, you know, kind of going after people who are serial violators with, you know, various illicit substances that might try to get past tests. And mm-hmm. they've they've done a lot of work and invested a lot of money into making it a safer experience. Now, like with any sport, there's no avoiding injury. Like, there's no way, there's no way possible to have a 100% safety rate and have a 0% fatality rate. We can get close, but right. it's impossible to do. And that's the unfortunate thing is that with, this, with the Breeders' Cup this year, keeping it Santa Anita because there was talk apparently internally of moving it somewhere else, just because of how, how much trouble had been with the track. This could either be a best case scenario or a worst case scenario. Worst, yeah. Best case scenario. We have the full weekend of races. Everyone comes back on four legs. Everybody's fine. And we can point at this and say, look, the changes are working. This is clearly working. We can use this as a model for other tracks to improve their safety. Now maybe you can get off our backs a little bit, but mm-hmm. on the worst case scenario, If a single horse stubs a toe, comes up with an owie, gets vanned off, or God forbid, gets put down on the track, that's Mm -hmm. going to put horse racing in an even worse light than, you know, because basically it would show like, what have you learned? And that's going to be, this is a, this is a eyes of the world event. It isn't quite to the level of the Kentucky Derby in terms of mainstream media attention, but it's something that would definitely get a lot of news, especially if it's a high profile horse that, you know, a lot, had a lot of fans, so it's going to be, it's going to be very scary, and I don't know, I, I, I I obviously hope everything goes well this weekend, but I really hope everything goes well for the sake of, you know, for the sake of the future of the sport.
1: Yes, and, you know, the thing, the, the other thing is that I, I saw this video on Twitter last night and actually stayed up like 18 minutes later than I really should have done, (laughs) and this, that was explaining the, the anatomy of a horse's legs and the, what I took from it, it's not so much the breaking of the bone that is a problem, it's the fact that all of the ligaments and tendons the damage to those is what makes it difficult to fix and then when, even if you do fix the leg, you have to deal with the potential for laminitis Mm-hmm. Which is a basically a hoof disease that can develop when a horse is not equally distributing his weight or her weight.
2: Right. And that's what uh, happened with Barbaro who...
1: because he was recovering from the broken yep. leg beautifully.
2: Yeah, and that's uh you know, that's exactly where I was gonna go with that is that he you know, he broke his leg very publicly. You know, During the Preakness Stakes, it was a, one, another sort of all-eyes event, and he spent over a year recovering from that, and because he wasn't putting pressure on that leg, uh, horses, I mean, you naturally put it on the other three legs, and those legs aren't designed to hold four legs worth of weight. They're designed to hold three mm-hmm. legs worth of weight. So when you're putting that extra mm-hmm. weight on there, they get this disease, and that's – I've dealt with uh, horses with laminitis myself, and it's very hard to get rid of. Even years later, it can be something that you have to be very careful with, and he got hit with an especially hard case of it, and it eventually led to the end of him. But you know, it's the 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 equine leg is a very fascinating thing, and as you mentioned, um, you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of support going on there in terms of ligaments Mm -hmm. and muscles, and you know those those things are very hard to recover. And once one of them is injured or, you know, is otherwise unusable, that leg goes with it.
1: Yeah. And my great-grandfather explained it to me with Ruffian. Um, Of course, I don't think he realized at that time that they were actually going to perform surgery on her. He explained it as horses can't lay down for any length of time. And the only way a horse could recover is that it could be able to lay down and they can't because they're so heavy. I've always said horses, god bless them, but they're from an engineering standpoint, they're very poorly designed because they're a big barrel Absolutely. with a big neck and a big head on four legs that are about the size of a human arm.
0: Mhm.
1: Depending on your depending on your breed, a draft horse's legs might be the size of your leg or thigh. <laughs> So, <laughs>
2: yeah, that's I know that one from experience.
1: Uh, you know, so it's it's very it's very difficult. As beautiful as they are, they're just from an engineering standpoint poorly designed. Mm-hmm. And bones, and that's the bones thing about, break.
2: Yeah, and that's the I, thing about horses is that they you could put them out in a field, completely away from the mm-hmm. racetrack. They could never see a racetrack. You could put the exact same horses in there. And they're gonna come mm-hmm. up with broken legs. They're going to take a bad step, and something could come up. Like mm-hmm. horses are just very good at injuring themselves and dying. There's no good. There's no way to sugarcoat that. Like I've had, we've had draft horses that are built like, you know, tanks. Tank. And they'd take a bad step, and yeah, and they'd have a bad step or something, and that's just, you know, you, you try to save them, and sometimes you can't. And thoroughbreds right. are particularly fast and they might be a little more fragile than a, you know, a draft horse, but they go through the same things. They go through the same injuries. They run and buck and play. And sometimes they twist an ankle and mm-hmm. that's, you know, horses, horses yeah. are just really good at hurting themselves.
1: Um, yeah. I was, I, I was going to say, uh, that's the thing that a lot of the critics don't understand. This could happen in a paddock. It could happen in a pasture. It can happen in a stall because charismatic was in a stall and somehow he fractured his pelvis. Perhaps he laid down and got – what is it, cast where they get their legs up against a surface and they can't Mm -hmm. turn over and they can't get up. Um, So it can happen more than racing and things that aren't as even strenuous as racing.
2: Mm. yeah with charismatic i think part of it was that he had a pre-existing crack in his pelvis and he just kind of got up on on it on the wrong way and that just kept the crack going but you know it's basically the same it's basically the same logic like you know he was an older horse it could have happened anytime it could have happened in the field could have happened during his racing career but you know it's but it's another one of those things you never know What's going to trigger that in a horse? And
1: it seems and like every horse that has Cara- that button
2: that once you once you push it.
1: Charismatic did. He broke his leg three strides before the wire in the Belmont Stakes. Yep. And he Chris sure McCarron pulled him up or was it Chris McCarron or was it Chris, Chris Antley. Antley pulled him up yep. and um and he was crying not because he didn't win triple Crown but because the horse was hurt
0: mm-hmm. there
1: are bad apples out there but for the most part trainers grooms owners jockeys love these animals like their children and it's in their best interest to love these
2: horses like that because mm-hmm. this is how they make their money and this is how they stay safe you know it doesn't it doesn't behoove someone to you know You know, beat a horse after he loses or something because what are you going to gain from that? He's not going to run faster the next time. You know, Mm -hmm. like you said, there are definitely bad apples, and as the age of social media has come about, and as you know, things like Santa Anita have brought greater awareness to the product as a whole. A lot of those bad apples are becoming more public, but you know, there's still there's there's a lot of good in this game, and there are a lot of people that think very highly of their horses, that love their horses, and that. Give up an awful lot to be involved with the business.:
1: mm-hmm. All right, well I think let's take a quick break, uh, stretch our legs, get a little fresh air, I'm going <laughs> to get a refill on my Diet Coke, and we'll be back in uh, with a little bit more clear and convincing, and in our interview with Joe Neville.
4: I never was the kind to wear my feelings on my sleeve Since i met you, girl, there's been a world of change in me Well, I've got to say I love you Hope you like the sound of that Cause I can't keep it under this old hat Under this old hat is the head you turned around And the heart you stole away the day we met Under this old hat's two arms that long to hold you tight And the boots that walk the soles off of to be here by your side And every night in my prayers there's just one thing I ask That the man you love will always be under this old hat
5: To come and babe, won't that be fine? You think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine Wait till the warm-up's underway Wait till our lips have met And wait till you see that sunshine day You ain't seen nothing yet
3: play, but it must have been around
1: Joe?
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) And Michael, uh, my producer, has joined us. He was held up, but he managed to make it. Good evening, Michael. How are you doing?
4: I'm doing pretty (laughs) good. Just sitting back enjoying. I probably got the last five, ten minutes of the conversation. I'm very interested in what you guys are talking about as far as, you know, just the different situations because – me not knowing anything, especially about the horses, you know, being put down and euthanized because they broke their legs and stuff, you know, just looking at me as an outsider opinion, it does. It looks a little, you know, inhumane kind of the way they're treated. But, you know, when you get hear stories like – I forget whether it was you, Lisa, that told the story about the gentleman that was crying when he – you uh-huh. know, when the horse went down on the track or whether it was you, Mr. Uh, Joe – but, it, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, it humanizes the situation.
1: Yeah. And euthanizing them on the track is because what has happened to the leg or, or involves both legs, it's too catastrophic to fix it. It cannot be fixed. Yes. And so you're euthanizing them to prevent them from suffering any more than they already have in the injury. And I think that's something people don't understand. Horses cannot, they cannot do, they don't do stall rest well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, they, they, you can fix some breaks and some muscular tendon issues, but you just sometimes cannot fix it. And when you fix it, then you have complications that come in. You know, with Barbaro, with Ruffian and Barbaro both, it was in essence complications because they were able to fix the damage. But Ruffian came out of surgery and injured herself worse. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And Barbaro developed laminitis in his hooves, which is a very, very painful condition. It's like imagine standing. Standing on a torn fingernail, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. That's how somebody's described it for me.
2: Sounds pretty accurate to me. <laughs>
1: so it, it's not, you know, it's it's not a, oh, they're not going to make any more money, get rid of them. It, it's not that at all. It's it's to prevent more suffering because there's nothing medically that can be done if they could save them
2: right right especially nowadays the uh market for off-track thoroughbreds uh horses that are done racing is more vibrant than ever so if a horse does come up with an injury and can be saved You know, there's a chance that he could have a second career as, you know, as we mentioned with Cosmic One, you know, he could go on to dressage or jumping or trail riding or, you know, potentially rodeo sports. There's all sorts of, there's a growing market for, you know, these horses that have come off the track that have this experience. And, you know, if a horse can be saved, they can go on and live a completely Mm -hmm. happy and healthy life.
1: Mm -hmm. And I know that was what the Jacksons intended for Barbaro. Yeah, um, it, but again, he—I think it was like seven, seven months because it happened in June or May, and they—they they, um, the laminitis came, got worse and came back and was in all four hooves by January. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, I, feel I, like I think it was a period of about seven while. or eight months. He he was doing wonderfully. Uh, he was at New mm-hmm. Bolton, which is with the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, he was doing wonderfully. But then he developed laminitis in one, and they they got that taken care of. And they don't, I don't. They're studying it. They're trying to figure it out. But that's laminitis is the thing. They don't know exactly what causes it, and so they can't. They don't know how to prevent it reliably. Mm-hmm.
2: But it's interesting. You hate to see high profile cases like you hate to see any horse go through what Barbaro did, much less a famous one. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting how much seeing a horse as famous as Barbaro was go through that raises awareness for whatever they're going through. The same thing happened mm-hmm. with Ruffian. Um, you know, she was ultimately put down after she thrashed in the stall and re-injured what happened on the racetrack. And after that happened, that really made people snap to attention to realize oh, we need to work on ways to help horses come out of anesthesia and recover better. And right. you know, the rate of horses that they've saved coming out of surgery jumped significantly after that because of what happened to Ruffian. You right, don't wish this they, upon anyone. But, recovery pool. But if it's going to happen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but if yeah. it's going to happen, you hope that some good change comes out of it. And in both of those situations, you know, the laminitis is still developing because it's such a tricky disease, but, you know, good things have come out of both of those. And if it's going to happen, that's all you can hope for.
1: Mm -hmm. And charismatic was a success story. They were able to repair his leg. He went on to a stud career. Um, He ended up going to a stud career in Japan. It says a lot about Kentucky and U S bred horses that, uh, United Emirates are setting up breeding operations in Kentucky and Mm -hmm. breeding from American stock, um, but also Japan, Korea. A lot of countries want U.S.-bred racehorses to augment their own bloodstock, which is really awesome.
2: Yeah um the united states is the pantheon of dirt track racing if you want to succeed with dirt racing you mostly have to come to the us japan has gotten a very good program they've stood several kentucky derby winners over the years um you know they breed very good for distance over there better than we do frankly but you know if you want to succeed on dirt which you know, Korea does as well. They run a lot of dirt races and they buy heavily from the U S they stand U S stallions that started here and usually go over there. Um, the turf racing is probably a little more international. Uh, you know, Europe's mm-hmm. probably the best, definitely the best for turf racing, but you know, we still have horses that can go over to the big meets like Royal Ascot and, you know, the Arc de Triomphe meet and make some noise. And it's, you know, it's 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 a good program. It's something that internationally people respect. And in the UAE with the Dubai World Cup, that's held on dirt. So the mm-hmm. Sheiks want something that's going to compete at their home track. You're going to come to America for that. So you have, you know, Sheikh Mohammed, who has Darley. You have uh, Sheikh Hamdan, who has the Shadwell Farm operation. They have stallions here. Mm-hmm. They buy heavily in America. But they also have, uh, you know, an English operation for their European interests, and they race in Dubai, so it's they've they've got places all over the place, but when it comes to specifically what the American product puts out, there's nobody that does it better
1: yeah and horse horse breeding uh in Kentucky about when did that start? I know they had operations in Virginia as well, probably back in the seventeen 17- 80s when somebody decided let's run these two horses
2: Mm-hmm. yeah that's the i mean the the thoroughbred breed traces back to three foundation stallions the byerly mm-hmm. turk the godolphin arabian and the darley arabian and those started in england and have every every thoroughbred traces back to those three horses and from there it just spread now when it came to america when it came to kentucky I don't have those numbers exactly on top of my head. I'd have to imagine you're pretty close on those numbers. And it's, you know, as you said, it bases, it's based on I bet my horse is faster than your horse. And we've built that into a multi billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And
1: now, when we talk about surfaces, there are basically three two very popular, one not so popular. Uh, we have turf, which is the grass. Mm-hmm. And what, what does it mean? What does the perfect turf horse look like?
2: Well, the big thing that people look for for turf horses is a big dishy hoof because they can get over the turf course better. They can, you know, dig in better, but they also float on top of it better. Um, it's just when, when, I, when I look for a turf horse, that's what I'm looking for. And a lot of it comes down to pedigree. There are a lot of horses that are just bred better for the turf. In North America, Kitten's Joy is the king of siring turf runners, and he himself was a turf champion. So that's something that if for a lot of horses, running on turf is just in the blood.
1: hmm Or with American Pharaoh, just somehow or another it just works because his most of yeah. his two year olds have been heavily on turf. And performed and I think better that on that
0: turf.
2: I think part of that, yes. too, is that he's, he stands for Ashford Stud, which is owned by the Coolmore Partnership, which is based over in Europe. So they want to run a lot of their horses in Ireland in England, and that's their primary surface over there is the turf. So if they want to run them close to home, they're going to have to get good on the turf. Okay.
1: And then there's dirt, which is what most Americans think of with racing. Yep. It's on the dirt oval – Uh, big Sandy is and the 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 fun one at Belmont. <laughs> <laughs> the big one. Yeah. But
2: yeah, that's dirt is pretty dirt is pretty basic. Uh, there are different setups for it. You know, there's different, you know, mixtures of dirt to sandy loam and different things you can put in it and different you know depths and things that you can do to the surface. But when it comes down to it, dirt is dirt is dirt. That's it's basically what you see is what you get.
1: Right and in in recent years though they've been they talk a lot about sealing the track which is i guess to prevent the moisture from getting down and making the dirt mud mhm or to decrease yeah, what the they production do... of mud
2: <laughs> mhm yeah for that they press down hard on the racing surface so it keeps the it keeps the track from becoming too soupy basically because i'm sure you've stepped in a mud puddle before and lost a shoe that's mm-hmm. no fun. You wouldn't want to run at full speed in that. So this helps keep that from happening. You know, when the rain comes down hard enough, sometimes there's just nothing you can do in that situation, but this helps preserve the racetrack and makes it more palatable for running because unlike NASCAR, horse racing will run in the rain. There are no rain outs right. in horse racing. Storm outs right. sure, but if, the, if there's rain on the track, they will run. There are some horses that specifically do better in the mud, mudders. And mm-hmm. um you know, keep sealing the track has its own pluses and minuses, but if it's between that and running in a soupy track, you take the sealed track.
1: Mhm. Yeah. And uh, and then synthetic and there's a lot of I I listened to a, a podcast and you know synthetic seems like the way to go, but there's a lot of pushback uh, from the betting community and the racetracks and. uh even, I think, some of the jockeys and trainers. Why is synthetic – why are we having such a hard time getting synthetic implemented on tracks?
2: There are a lot of answers to this. First off, as, as we mentioned before, dirt is the primary surface. This is the surface that we've been running on since day one of horse racing, basically dirt and turf. So something new is hard to trust. Uh, Second off, running on synthetic is a lot closer to running on turf than it is to running on dirt, even though synthetic usually replaces a dirt track at a racetrack. So that Mm -hmm. opens up a lot more turf horses, and horses that are bred for dirt might not perform as well on it, but our most successful North American stallions are the most successful and the most expensive because they succeed on the dirt. So there's a breeding interest there to keep away you know, if your stallion's the best on dirt, you want your horses to be able to run on that. Uh, take, for example, Curlin, who... There were two editions of the Breeders' Cup that ran on synthetic surfaces at Santa Anita. It was, I believe, 2009 and 2010. And mm-hmm. Curlin was a Horse of the Year, and he was the favorite going into the Breeders' Cup Classic in, I believe it was 2009. And they ran on a synthetic surface, and he got beaten by a bunch of European horses who were used to running on the turf. And I think a lot of North American breeders didn't like the looks of that. So before Uh, too long, Santa needed to go back to dirt. And since then synthetic has had an uphill battle regaining footing, even though the numbers very clearly pour out that synthetic surfaces are safer than natural dirt. There are still a handful of synthetic tracks in North America Um, Woodbine up in Toronto is probably the most famous one. Um, There's one in Pennsylvania. There's one in Northern California up in San Francisco. Um, Mm -hmm. Turfway Park in Kentucky has it. They run over the winter because it also doesn't freeze. So you can run in any season. They call it all weather surface because it doesn't get muddy. It doesn't freeze or it takes an awful cold day for it to freeze. You know, you, you can run on it in a lot of surfaces where either dirt or turf wouldn't be as safe to do so. But Okay. Another thing is cost prohibitions because it costs a lot to rip up your dirt track and put in a synthetic surface and maintain that. So some tracks just don't want to foot that bill. So there's a lot of reasons, but I think eventually you're going to start seeing more tracks get the synthetic surfaces just for safety's sake.
1: Right. And you know, if any, I mean, if the two year olds this season, a lot of them, a lot of talk has been that, you know, this wasn't a this wasn't a turf horse, but look at how well they're running on turf. Like yep. American Pharaoh and there are a couple of other sires. So maybe these new sires will also help uh make more versatile runners who can and will happily run on anything to make a transition much more palatable for uh The American racing public and tracks and and owners alike. It's very possible. Very possible. We can cross our fingers. (laughs) So, And then when we talk distances, we've got uh, furlongs. What is a furlong?
2: A furlong. I'm the true crime
1: audience. An eighth of a mile.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, simple (laughs) as that. I don't know why they decided on furlongs or eighths of a mile as the kind of go-to distance for horse racing, but that's what we've got. Furlong is an eighth of a mile.
1: Right. And then we have – so so eight furlongs is a mile. Oh, yep. that's easy. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. All right. And then we have different – you see different types of races described in programs and on when you're handicapping and looking at uh, horses uh, prior races. You see sprints, miles. What is a mm-hmm. sprint?
2: So a sprint is by the nature of the word any race that is under a mile. So okay. that would be seven and a half furlongs or less. Usually it's around one turn instead of you know going all the way around the, the oval. But that depends mm-hmm. on the you know size of the track, like Belmont Park, Big Sandy is a really big track. So even races over a mile can be one turn. But tip but by the by the nature of the word it's under a mile is a sprint. Okay.
1: And then, of course, a mile is, is a mile, and that's usually one turn, but sometimes you get two turns. Yeah, some tracks are a mile around.
2: Uh, other ones are a little over a mile. Some of them are mile 16th or so. So it all depends on the layout of the track. Every racetrack is different in terms of its configuration, You know whether it has a turf course, how everything's laid out. So that's part of the fun and challenge of handicapping is seeing which horses run best on um, specific, you know, footings. Okay.
1: And then a distaff.
2: A distaff is a stakes race for older fillies, older fillies and mares.
1: Okay. And is it, did I read this correctly? It's weight for age. So uh, the older fillies carry more weight or do the older fillies get less weight and the, the older ones carry more and the younger ones get less
2: right because the older the older fillies and mares are in a further stage of development than the younger ones so a 3 year old filly will kind of be like a high school senior or a you know college age athlete going up against you know an nba player for example so okay. you know you're going it's 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 like a teenager or early 20 something going against a full grown adult so they give them a little less weight to carry to give them more even footing okay and then
1: a stakes race
2: Mm -hmm. a stakes race is the highest level of competition in horse racing this is a race in which you have to pay various uh, entry and nomination fees or your stake in the race to enter the race and then everybody pays that and that goes into the purse uh the track contributes part of that purse as well and that's um These are where you're most expensive. This is where your money is made on the racetrack. If you're a racehorse is in stakes races. This is what, these are the races you want to win. These are the ones that build your resume to be a stallion or a broodmare. Stakes races are what you want to do.
1: Okay. And then I see handicaps and futurities a lot. What are Mm. those? What's the Uh, distinction between?
2: Handicaps are races in which, uh, these are usually for older males, or you know, three and up at least. Uh, they us- they're usually longer distances, and at least in the old days, not as much nowadays. But in the old days, uh, horses would be assigned weights based on their level of talent in the eyes of the racing secretary at that particular track. So, uh, better mm. horse, for example, uh, Seabiscuit back in the day would get these giant weight allowances. He'd have to ride with like 145 pounds on his back, where a lesser horse would ride with say 125 pounds and the weight advantage was supposed to give the lesser horse a better chance at potentially beating Seabiscuit, but because Seabiscuit is, was Seabiscuit, he'd usually win anyway. But there were times when he'd be running against horses with 20 pounds less on their back and they'd be more competitive because, you know, you try running with 20 pounds on your back, even for a horse, that's a significant amount of weight.
1: Okay. Now I understand. So I, and, I've seen, to and I've seen and heard, it's, I've heard, you know, commentators and read articles about a horse having to give weight mm-hmm. to another horse. Or, yep, or something the, the, the terminology even, may not be correct, but.
2: No, you're right on that. It's basically a way to ensure the most even playing field as possible. And an ideal handicap, if all the weights are accurate, all the horses should dead heat at the same time. But okay. obviously that never happened.
1: <laughs> but, that's, right. but
2: that's the goal when assigning weights or otherwise you know, putting weights to give advantage to different horses of either age or ability.
1: Okay. And then Futurities. Futurities are races that are
2: usually for two-year-olds. And these are races that you pay into well in advance. So uh, for example, Keeneland Racecourse has the Breeders Futurity and you nominate your horses for that when they're still basically yearlings, and it what the gimmick for that is, you get a lot of horses doing it in the beginning, and that uh, fills your purse up. So when the horses finally do run, you have a handful of say ten to twelve horses, and they're running for everybody's pot for that.
1: Okay, all right. And then so you pay a small grading. fee at the beginning
2: with the hopes that you do.
1: so for grading
2: Wait. these are. Uh, These are the level of stakes that are even better than regular stakes races. These are the highest level of possible competition for racehorses. So grade one is your Kentucky Derby. This is your Breeders' Cup Classic. This is your best of the best cream of the crop. If you win a grade one, you are among the best at what you do. Then they have grade two and grade three. And those are a little lower on the scale. But either way, graded stakes races are what make stallions. Graded stakes races are what make broodmares. Graded stakes races are what make money. And these are the things that if you do that, you're among the best of what you do.
1: Okay. And so if you're looking to, you know, put money on a horse in the Breeders' Cup Classic, you look for one who's first, second, or third in stakes and graded races, not yep. first, second, or third in, in handicaps or futurities or... Well, they
2: can be – the the British Fraturity I mentioned is actually a grade one race. Yeah, uh, maidens and allowances – yeah, that's – yeah, handicaps and fraturities quite often can be graded stakes races.
1: Okay, okay. Allowances and – and I didn't include those on the list, but allowances and uh, special weights and maiden races are for horses who never won. Even I know that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to to keep with Thanks the professional sports, sports spectrum, yes, to keep with the professional sports spectrum, maiden and allowance races are like high school and college sports, and then your graded stakes races are your professional sports.
1: Okay. And then of course we've been talking uh, horses. Uh, you have colts and stallions. Now, mm-hmm. when would a stallion become a stallion?
2: Well, uh, what happens is you're a colt until you turn five. you You're In the eyes of the jockey club, you're registered as a colt, and then you're viewed as a horse. And then you become a stallion okay. once you start your breeding career.
1: Ah, okay. And then fillies would be the same. Philly is a female um, up yep. to age five or up until bred.
2: So yeah, if you're a four-year if you're if you're a four-year-old filly, but you're bred during your four-year-old year, and this is all just weird jockey club designation stuff, but yes, yeah, as, as soon as you as soon as you begin your breeding career, if you're a female, you you become a mare.
1: You become a mare. Okay. Yep. Or 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 at age five, if you don't meet the right stallion. Correct. Correct. <laughs> you you become a mare. <laughs> and then gelding. Love is out there for everyone. It's not a race. <laughs> Uh and then geldings are why would they geld uh, you know a stallion from you know Pioneer of the Nile? Why would you geld a coffin wants a gelding from Zenyatta. yeah well,
2: think about when you were back in high school and think about all the teenage boys you were around, and they all had one thing on their mind, and it was the opposite sex, and it was hard to keep them focused on their jobs. And, you know, they, they, they have other things in mind and they have testosterone flowing. So to keep them better focused on their jobs and quite frankly, to keep them safer to handle sometimes you'll castrate the horse and they, you know, they better focus. Um, you know, they keep a relatively same level of testosterone, but they, you know, you remove them from the breeding pool once, which, you know, considering, you know, overpopulation and such is, is a good thing. And it just, it makes them mm-hmm. easier to handle. It focuses on their job better. And it's frankly easier to get them onto a second career because you don't have to worry about them being studdish because right. that testosterone after a while can build up and can make a horse dangerous.
1: Correct. My great grandfather had a, a stud pony named Spatz who was in a, his own stable. He had his own paddock. And if he was in the paddock, for God's sake, you don't go behind the barn or he'll come through the fence <laughs> and get yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> he was a pony. He was like maybe 12 hands. <laughs> but yeah, I once, I once encountered Spatz in his paddock as I was coming from the spring, and I saw him and he saw me. He squealed, I squealed, and ran diagonally out of his line of sight and hope Mm -hmm. my grandfather did not find out that I went behind the barn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you know, there are, there, it's not necessarily a, you
2: know, sometimes it's talent related, but there are a lot of great geldings that have raced. You know, John Henry, I believe was a gelding and he became one of the greatest runners of all time. Um, A lot of, I'm blanking on the spot, but there are, you know, geldings when grade one races all the time, they run in, the Breeders' Cup, they, you mm-hmm. know, it's not necessarily a knock. They might not be as ambitiously placed because, you know, intact horses, intact stallions are looking to build a stallion resume. But, you know, mind that bird was a gelding. Winner of the Kentucky mm-hmm. Derby upset winner. He was a gelding. And, a, and he beat a bunch mm-hmm. of stallions or potential stallions to do that. Correct.
1: And then he got beat by a girl in the Preakness.
2: Yeah. With that, that was really funny because – when Rachel Alexandra won the Kentucky Oaks that year, her owner at the time said that she he didn't want to run her in the Preakness because the Triple Crown races should be stallion-making races. So mm-hmm. the day after that, Mind That Bird, a gelding, wins a Kentucky Derby. That owner sells the horse to Jess Jackson of Stone Street Farm, and then he goes and wins the Preakness with a filly. So mm-hmm. that year was just a complete flop for that statement.
1: Yeah. But Mind That Bird's run – I I was depressed because I could have put money on him at fifty to one. <laughs> oh yeah, and we were the, at the I... bar watching it, and him he and Calvin Burrell, a Louisiana jockey, coming up the mm-hmm. rail like a streak, and I would have won a hundred dollars.
2: Oh yeah, nobody saw him coming, myself included. <laughs>
1: So it sometimes it's just it, the weather conditions. I'm sure a lot of the horses, mm-hmm. I remember the post parade, a lot of the horses looked like they did not want to be there. They were not crazy about the conditions. And that was pioneer of the Nile. He was the favorite.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. So. And part of that too, you mentioned Calvin Burrell. And when he was on during that run in the, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, he just – he was mm-hmm. fearless. He'd take that rail, and he would just go with it. Whether there was a hole or not, he would make one, and he made one with that horse, right. and he got through.
1: Right. It was it was awesome to behold, but I was also upset this year with the Belmont because I, I'm i a history person, and I should have mm-hmm. put money on Sir Winston because it was D-Day. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is how I handicap Joe. Hey, I like the sire. I like the dam. Pretty horse. <laughs> like his you're personality. Talking to the
2: guy who you're talking to the guy who handicaps his racing using quotes from the office. So you're not gonna get any slack from me on this.
1: <laughs> so and you know, it might work sometimes if, if my problem oh, yeah. is I, I have I have the idea, but I don't always have the follow through.
2: Mm-hmm. the thing is so, though if you have the follow through and you yes. actually do bet on the horse he'll lose every time like I've, I've found that out like if I ha- if I have a good hunch my money will make him lose quicker than anything
1: this is true I put money on Jovia <laughs> to win and if I put him on if I put it on him to place our show he probably would have been like last or not finished <laughs> <laughs> so but all right, well, let's get some, a little bit of handicapping. I don't think we're going to talk about all the races. Uh, of the Future Stars Friday races, uh, what do you think is the biggest uh, race that's going to show us next season and, and show us who the stars of the Kentucky Derby will be?
2: Well, for that one, you have to pay credence to the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. That's going to be the main event of Friday's card. And this race will almost certainly decide the champion two-year-old of 2019 and will establish an automatic, you know, right now favorite for the 2020 Kentucky Derby. Now, horses that win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile don't necessarily have the best record of winning the Kentucky Derby, but horses that run in the race have usually made a lot of noise, when it comes to be the first Saturday in May. So, you know, sometimes a horse peaks at the right time and hits now and doesn't quite have that same magic in May. But, you know, right now this is the state of the union when it comes to this crop of foals.
1: Okay. All right. And on the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, I'm looking through for my post positions. And I've got, uh, oh, let's see. And I, I, you're on your own with the scratches. I, I did a list and sent it to you, but I don't <laughs> yep. know if you got it. You <laughs> did. All I right. Did. We're in
2: good shape. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, the nine max field was scratched in here, so we're looking at a field of eight.
1: Okay. And uh, a lot of stallions represented. We've got Medallia Dioro, City Zip, Empire Maker, Tis Now. Bates, Bates Town, Warfront, who seems to be the hot sire next to Into Mischief. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got Court Vision, who is a Louisiana sire and has already won the Breeders' Cup mile.
2: Yeah, uh, Court Vision is a kind of a, – he's a neat stallion. He started his career in Canada. And was very good up there, but the Ontario breeding industry has been kind of hit or miss over the last five or so years. So uh, his owners moved him mm-hmm. to Kentucky, and then he uh, kind of bounced around from there, and now he's in Louisiana. But you know, he's a he's a very serviceable stallion. He'll I don't know if uh, Court Vision is the sire of Number Four Storm the Court in the Breeders Cup Juvenile. I don't think this is mm-hmm. his race, but Court Vision's a good sire, and I think this horse will probably go on to make some noise later on in the year, potentially in 2020.
1: And then Dennis's moment seems to be the favorite at eight to five. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this horse I've seen had a couple a... of his races. He's something.
2: Oh yeah, he won his he he broke his maiden, which is the term for winning your first race, by nineteen and a quarter lengths, which is boy, that's a long way. That's several basketball courts of distance between the next closest horse. And then he came Mm -hmm. back in the grade three Iroquois stakes at Churchill Downs and won that by, it was a length and three quarters with a finishing margin, but he was so far ahead of the next closest horse that he was basically geared down. It was a very professional ride and basically saved something in the tank for a bigger effort, like what he's going to face on Friday, which you Mm -hmm. like to see that. You don't like to see a horse burn himself out in a prep race and then have nothing left for for the main event. So I think he's definitely going to be in with a shot in this one.
1: And that's good. With, with a two-year-old, that shows a level of uh, maturity.
2: Absolutely. And for two-year-olds, again, we're looking at basically teenagers. So to show that sort of maturity and advanced level at this age, you like to see that.
1: And then uh, what about a second favorite? Who would you, who would you put your money well, on course if course you I... were doing a three trifecta?
2: The horse I'm actually putting on top in this race is the six-horse, Eight Rings. Now, this is a son of Empire Maker who comes off a six-length win in the grade one American Pharaoh Stakes, and what makes this race particularly special is that the American Pharaoh Stakes was held at Santa Anita Park, the same surface that they're going to run the Breeders' Cup Juvenile on. And now this is important because with all the safety measures that Santa Anita has made, they've really deepened the track surface. They've slowed it down a lot to make it safer and to make it more cushiony Mm -hmm. on the horses. And this horse clearly loves that surface and he likes getting out in front. And I think this is going to be a very tiring surface for a lot of horses. So if he has the past performance to prove that he can get on the front and nobody can catch him, I think if he can get that same clean trip, he might get on front and just shake loose and everybody else will have to run through this deep tiring track to try, to try to catch him and we'll see if anyone can but 8 rings is my pick yeah. in the juvenile.
1: Okay. And the one in the 16th mile, have they have these horses run that distance or close to that distance?
2: Uh a few of them have actually the race to 8 rings one that I spoke about was at a mile and a 16th. Uh so was the last race that Dennis's Moment ran the uh Iroquois Stakes at Churchill Downs, so the horses mm-hmm. that have uh, meaningful – the horses that are going to make noise here have run at that distance before.
1: Okay. All right. I will keep the, those two in mind. Who would you pick for a trifecta? Um,
2: so my top three I picked in here, and I'm going to go to the haiku handicapper picks for this. So okay. this, is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is my Breeders' Cup Juvenile prediction in haiku. Now, haiku is a poem – of 17 syllables, lines of five, seven, and five. So, hang on for this. Mm-hmm. Dennis chases rings, but runs out of real estate. Five to fill it out. So, basically, I'm picking eight rings over Dennis's moment, over the five Scabbard, over number two Wrecking Crew. Okay. Now, Scabbard Scabbard ran second to Dennis's moment in the uh, Iroquois, and he was a screaming closer in this race. He made up all sorts of ground and I think if anybody's going to manage that deep track of Santa Anita, it could be him. He'll be passing a lot of tired horses late and I think he clunks up for at least a piece of it. So okay. if you're looking for one to put under, he's gonna be he's he's gonna be the one that I have my eye on.
1: All right. And at what are his odds? Uh let's see, Scabbards eight to one. at eight to one. So that's not too bad. You got uh two to one, eight to five And eight to one. That's respectable. Yeah. Conservative wouldn't, wouldn't it be conservative?
2: Oh yeah. That's, I'm, I'm not a terribly brave handicapper unless I think I know something. And for this one, it seems like there are two, there are two primary horses here and it would be surprising if anyone upset them.
1: Okay. All right. And then on the main event on Saturday, there are so many uh so many different races at at uh at hand and they they're going to decide best Philly, best turf horse best of the best of uh mm-hmm. and in in a lot of cases i think some of these horses are going to be running against older company that they've never competed against before because they've competed with their contemporaries, for the most Mm -hmm. part, and the three-year-olds. So what are your your top uh, races? Well,
2: you have to start and end with the Breeders' Cup Classic. This is the main event of Saturday's card. It's a $6 million race for 3 quarter. So this is the same distance as the Kentucky Derby. You have some horses that ran in this year's Kentucky Derby, and they're going to be facing older competition. This is probably going to be the biggest race of their lives so um this will be it's a a very balanced field it's going to be hard to single out a true favorite here but that also means that these Mm -hmm. horses are going to give very good prices at the betting windows so it's going to be hard to pick a winner but if you can you're going to get paid for it
1: and overall would you think that horses who have uh run in breeders comp events before uh have an advantage because they they're they're They've experienced the different atmosphere for a Breeders' Cup, almost more than a C- Kentucky Derby or pre- I think
2: it's tough because the. I think it's tough because the Breeders' Cup is a traveling show. You know, they very rarely race in the same track at the same. You know, year after year. You know, last year was at Churchill. A few years ago mm-hmm. it was at Keeneland. It's been to Santa Anita quite a bit but it's been a few years now. So I think the experience isn't as important as the venue. So a horse that did well at last year's Breeders' Cup at Churchill Downs might not necessarily like the track as much at Santa Anita. So I don't really think that's as much of a factor.
1: Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting because I would think I would have thought, Oh, you know, been there, done that. No big deal. (laughs) But (laughs) I guess you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's, Because it's not held in the same racetrack every year. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a different experience. It's pretty much a different level playing field for everybody, whether they've run in Breeders' Cup or not.
2: Pretty much. The thing to look out for is the prep races before the Breeders' Cup. I like to see horses that have prepped at the track the Breeders' Cup is being held, if possible. Santa Anita has a lot of significant races that lead into the Breeders' Cup. So that gives you a pretty good identifier of whether a horse likes the surface or whether they're going to struggle over it.
1: Okay. And so who would you be, who, who are your favorites in Breeders' Cup Classic?
2: So my pick for the Breeders' Cup Classic, going off that Santa Anita, like horses that have done well on the track angle, uh, my pick is number 10, Vino Rosso. This is a horse that won the gold cup at Santa Anita stakes uh, earlier this year, back in, May, I Mm -hmm. believe. Let me make sure on that. Quality control. Yes, back in May. And he, you know, clearly he likes the surface. He primarily runs in New York, but he has a history over it. He's done well over it. And he's coming off a very tough race in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. Oh, Joe, I'm
1: sorry. We are, uh, we changed the start time, but not the end time. And I apologize. So, um, Unfortunately, this is the end, and Michael's in trouble. He, <laughs> I wasn't mad at him before, but I'm mad at him now. <laughs> so, oh no. thank bad. you for <laughs> thank you for joining us for clear and convincing. Thank you for joining us for clear and convincing tonight, and we will see you next week for a Mad Doctor series. Good night.